0: In your pew Bible, Psalm 99 is found on page 500. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Oh God, we love you this morning. And we thank you for so great a salvation. God, we thank you that through your mercy and grace... We can know and explore the height, the width, the depth, and breadth of your love for us. God, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through this salvation that you've blessed us with and that you've given us divinely powerful weapons that we can be strengthened and stand firm against those enemies of our soul, the devil this world system, and our own sin nature, God. Lord, we thank you for leading us from victory unto victory until that final day. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, Psalm 99. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834, 1892. Almost brought him into the 20th century there. Uh, 1834 to 1892 uh, a faithful preacher of the word of God in England known as the Prince of Preachers describes Psalm 99 as the holy, holy, holy psalm it's the last in what is known as the royal psalms Psalm 93 through 99 are known as the royal psalms that is praising God as king of his people We don't have a description in our Bibles here of who wrote the psalm. The Hebrew does not tell us. The Greek Septuagint tells us, though, or at least um, alludes, gives claim to David as the author of Psalm 99. And I think if we would spend more time than we have this morning studying it, we could hear the voice of David in this. Uh, This is organized by way of couplet. Let me just give you a, a, a quick Reminder of what that is. That is much of Hebrew poetry is organized in this fashion. A couplet or a triplet where it will say one thing and it will either build on top of that or it will say it in another way to emphasize a point. So just by way of example, look at verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. It's saying the same thing just two different ways. this is full of that, where there's a truth and a response. There's this this putting together and, and creating for us word pictures. But before we dive into the passage in depth, let us ask the question, what does it mean for created beings that God is holy? And why is this important for us to grasp? Why is it in the Old Testament that God tells us he would be regarded as Holy. What does it mean for us in this day? I would submit to you that I think if you if you if you leave here this afternoon, you turn on the radio, you turn on the internet, you look at the news, and you see the chaos that is around us. It's because the world no longer recognizes that God is holy, and therefore every man does what is right in his own eyes. There is no fear of God. Well, then how do we get a fear of God? We get it by recognizing the holiness of God. And Psalm 99 is going to crack open that holiness in a unique way this morning. If this goes long, I beg your forgiveness. I'm 12 pages in and it could have gone much longer. That there's so much here that connects to the old and the new. And I would just submit to you by way of study to take your Bibles in this coming week and, and open it and, and thumb through it and begin to look for how this idea of God as holy is, is rampant through the scriptures is from the Old Testament to the New and everything in between. And why, when God reveals himself in his most mighty fashion, it is in order to reveal himself as holy. Why? And what of it? Now, let's take a look at this psalm in depth. And if you're taking notes, I'm Dividing this psalm into four different four different ways or four different breaks, this first section is in verses one through three, and I've entitled it "Our Lord is Holy," and that is the holy, holy, holy that Spurgeon alluded to, and you see it in three different places. You see it at the end of verse three, you see it at the end of verse five, and you see it at the end of verse nine. And so one through three, our Lord is holy. And if you've been here for some period of time, you'll know or notice that Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is to tell us that this is Yahweh as compared to Adonai. Yahweh, this is the personal name of God. God the Israelite tradition was to not even pronounce or spell out God's name. So if you were to go online and look it up, you might see it spelled as Y-H-W-H. As compared to Y-A-H-W-E-H. The Israelites knew that this God who has displayed himself to them was to not even be spoken with the slightest bit of irreverence. And thus we have God displaying himself as Yahweh, his covenant faithfulness, his personal name as compared to Adonai who speaks of his sovereignty. So you could think of it as the president, Adonai, describing his position and then the name after that, President John. And John is his personal name. The name of Yahweh describes who he is. And this is the importance of the name, of names in the Bible, is it's not just something to call somebody by, but it describes that actual person. And Yahweh describes who God is. In fact, you see that in verse 3. Great and awesome is his name. Now, I think it's helpful for us to just remember uh, that if we go back in the Old Testament, as early as Genesis chapter 4... The people of God called upon God as Yahweh. So you might jot down Genesis chapter four, verse 26. It says this, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. But interestingly enough, they called upon him as Yahweh, but they did not understand what that meant as the personal name of God. God did not tell them what that meant for some time. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, we get this clue. It's the context of Moses being sent by God to rescue the people from Egypt. And the, and, and the Egyptians have just placed stronger restrictions upon what they, how they are to make bricks, bricks without straw. And Moses goes before God and says, what do I do now? And this is what God tells him. Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. I appeared to him as El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, but my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. They called upon God as Yahweh early in the Bible, but they did not know what that meant. What does that mean for us? He's saying, I revealed myself as El Shaddai to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have revealed myself as the one of power and provision, a protector, as the creator, but now I will make myself known as Yahweh, the God of redemption, holiness, and judgment. I'm going to display that in an entirely new way. And we'll tease this out in a moment. But what does it mean that our God, Yahweh, is holy? The the Holman Bible Dictionary describes holiness in in four ways, and I would submit them to you. I think they're helpful. Number one, it's to be set apart. To be something different than everything else around it. Number two, and this is how the Bible describes us as believers, as holy, is we have been by the blood of Christ, by the holiness of Christ, made perfect, transcendent, spiritually pure. But much of the Bible wants us to understand holiness by way of number three and number four of these definitions. And let me submit them to you. Number three, holiness Evokes veneration or awe, being frightened beyond belief. And number four, filled with superhuman and potential fatal power. Now I don't know about you, but the world would like to see God as the cosmic teddy bear, but not as one who has fatal power. Not as the one to whom... Every person should be frightened beyond belief. What about you this morning? I don't like to think of God as frightening. And yet I find it ironic that the world around us, that the creation around us does things to me all the time that, that frighten me beyond belief. I would be a world-class Olympic runner if somebody ever timed me for the speed I can move in 20 meters when walking home late Saturday night after preparing a sermon and hearing a rustling in the grass. (laughs) Why does that do something to me? Have you ever gone online and watched what happens at a professional ball game? The best... Baseball players in the world, the best athletes in the world that play baseball, and they're all up to plate, and a storm's brewing behind the stadium, and lightning strikes. Go look for it. Grown men take off running out of sheer terror. Who controls the lightning? Who controls the rustling in the grass? God does, and that is but a microcosm of his power. Fire does this to us as well. Now, we like the warm, nice campfire, but if you've ever been around a raging bonfire or even worse, a wildfire, it terrifies you to no end. You come close to it and you feel its power to absolutely melt you. So this is why we have in the Bible Mount Sinai. This idea of God coming down upon a mountain in fire. And what do the people do? They get away. I want, us to, take, I want to take us to a couple different passages in Scripture where we can see uh, holiness encountered. Excuse me, one passage in Scripture where we can see holiness encountered. We've looked at holiness defined, and I gave you four definitions. I want us to see holiness encountered and then holiness responded to. We could could go to Noah's flood and see the power of God's holiness, potential fatal power displayed. But let's go to what I just mentioned, Mount Sinai. Go with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 and look with me at verse 16 and we'll read down a few verses here. So remember the people of Israel have just come through the Red Sea. They've just been uh, redeemed, brought out, exited from Egypt and now they're out Mount Sinai where God's going to come down and And God prepares the people. And notice what takes place. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, okay? Put yourself in the position if you can. We've all seen some of these things. On the morning of the third day, all these people around the base of this mountain, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. (laughs) This is holiness encountered. Uh, This is the, the people of God seeing God on display and they want nothing to do with it. He has been the one who's just rescued them from Pharaoh brought them through and split a sea in the middle, and they want nothing to do with it. This God frightens beyond belief. How's holiness responded to in the Bible? We could go to another passages, but we'll go to the one we probably all are thinking about, which is Isaiah chapter six. Go with me there, Isaiah chapter six. You know this passage well, I'm sure. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah's vision of the throne room, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his faith. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am a man, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the people dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, I, I, I don't think anybody can read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 in the way that, that Isaiah would have said it. It's a sheer pleading. Notice it's, it's so much similarities to what we saw on Mount Sinai. The, the foundations of the temple are being Moved. I've never been in an earthquake, but it would frighten me if the whole building here started to shake and filled with smoke and you're supposed to sit in there and take it. Or or at the base of Mount Sinai and a whole mountain is moving and fire is raining and smoke is filling your nostrils and you're supposed to take it and actually approach it. What what else would you say? Woe is me. Who am I? How could I possibly... And notice even Isaiah's response is a corporate one. When we see the holiness of God in the Bible, when we see it before our eyes in creation, we should respond like Isaiah did, which is to look at our nation and say, Woe is me, I dwell in the people of an unclean of unclean lips. Let the peoples tremble. Verse 199. Let the earth quake. I find it interesting that when God speaks, he sounds like thunder. I was reading in First Samuel a couple of weeks ago and what takes place with the Philistines when they have, uh, when, when the Israelites are going up against them in battle and God thunders and they all scatter and are routed. I I don't know about you, but we've all heard the split of thunder, that one loud crack where everything in you just shivers down. And imagine that over and over and over again, so deafening that your entire body is wanting nothing to do other than flee its presence. That's God in his power. What happens in Scripture for those who do not recognize God reigns. Well, we could see that in, in the Old Testament. The earth actually splits and swallows people up. The heavens roar and people tremble. And I, I think it's interesting. Look, he sits, verse 1 of 99, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. He sits above the angels. And these are not, these are not little porcelain creatures with fat bellies and a little bow and arrow. That is a disrespect a disrespect to angelic beings that God has created. These are terrifying creatures. And so thus it's a wonder of the rebellion that we see in our country today, of riots and casting off authority. And it's really a mark of pulpits just like this one that have refused to preach the authority of God. And thus every man does what he wants to do. Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Romans 3, verse 18 quotes the same thing. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A.W. Tozer is a helpful writer on some of these matters. And he, he, he put it this way, or asked the question, what comes into our minds made the statement what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us so let me put you put the question to you when you consider God this morning what comes to your mind that's revealing it's discouraging for me about how I think about God when when that thought and idea comes to God thus We should be so grateful for passages like Psalm 99 that recalibrate that false thinking at times. God is to be feared. God is not like us. He is to be feared by his people, us. He should strike terror in the best of men. His power should instill fear unlike any other height, sound, power, or landscape could evoke upon the hearts of men. And thus for the Christian, it is no wonder that God's goodness is a constant theme for the people of God. Without his goodness, we could not abide his power and might. We could not be in his presence and exist. We could not comprehend his holiness and draw a breath. And when we're to look upon it and we recognize that all of that power is executed for us, Psalm 99 Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Our Lord is holy, one through three. Our king is holy in verses four and five. Notice what it says. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. God fathered the universe. God created it. And the fatherhood of God, the authority of God, is stamped over all creation. He's, he's the good father of all. And so our king rules as to bring all things to its right and good end. Or to say it another way, all the holiness and authority of God in verses one through three is exercised in justice in verses four and five. And we know this as believers that this is not just To be displayed for the people of God, the righteousness you have executed, justice and righteousness in Jacob, verse 4. It's not just displayed to the people of God, through Christ, it will be displayed to all people when Christ returns to judge. Have you ever thought about the fact that we will never see full and complete justice this side of heaven? That's why Christ returns. Does that mean that we shouldn't work to have laws and hold officials to the task of executing proper justice? Of course not, we should. But nor does that mean one can ever fully see justice on this side of heaven, and it is the person who understands the final justice that Christ will bring that works diligently for it here for his glory. Obviously, the hot-button issue these days is justice for racism and I think it's helpful I think it's needed that we define biblically what racism is it's simply this when I look at anyone when I look at anyone man woman child and treat them as less than made in the image of God I treat them less than as made in the image of God and then I pile up a little bit more sin on top of that because then we can go over to James and we can see the sin of partiality or we think of, of someone as less than we are and then we actually put them in that place. Will racism ever, able, be, ever be able to be eradicated by means of education, social constructs, laws? Of course not. Because why? Because it's a sin of the heart. It's a heart problem, not a social problem. Should one seek to promote a society where a person is not judged on the color of their skin, the number at the bottom of their bank account, the type of car that they drive, the neighborhood that they live in, but upon the content of their character? Yes, but it can only be done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the remedy is the gospel, not social education or vocational constructions. Why do I, is this a sidebar to verse four and five? Am I just finding things I can look at? No, this this is the direct application to the fact that God is king and he's holy. This is what it means. This is how it's applied in our nation. And for the Christian who serves the one who loves justice, we should be the greatest haters of racism of any and every kind black on black, white on white, black on white, white on black, brown on brown, tan on tan, beige on beige. You get the point. And how do we express that hatred for sin? By calling all to trust Christ and repent of their sin and promoting and supporting laws in our country that treat all as made in the image of God. That's why the greatest issue of racism in our country is abortion we the people of the United States have decided that those made in the image of God in the wombs of their mother are less than we are, can be destroyed at our will and pleasure. And it's our country's sin. I dwell in the people of, an un, of unclean lips. So we can't just look at it and say, well, I've never been a part of that. That doesn't give us out to not fight that. Nor can we say, if someone has been a part of it, they're therefore not, they're not like me and I can treat them as else, something else. That's racism. Less than the image of God. God displays his righteousness and justice to his people. And one day he will display it to all. Why should the Christian pursue God's justice on this side of heaven? Because it shows our allegiance to him. It is worship. That's the last part of verse 5. We should be those who exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. And the question would be, what does that mean, footstool? Well, there's a lot of different ways the Bible describes the footstool of God. It can be the whole earth. But one of the specific things that it's described, is, it's described as is the, is the, uh, the tabernacle. First Chronicles 28, verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. I made preparations for building. Psalm 132, verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. It's this idea of God coming down and dwelling amongst his people. And so we go to where he is. And we bow before his throne. He is enthroned above the cherubim and we go bow at his feet. That's the idea, the picture being displayed here. Our our Lord is holy, our king is holy. And then number three, verses six through eight, our God answers his people. Verse five, you see there, ends with a command. Worship at his footstool. I I have no ability with the English language to possibly display to you the holiness of God. But if you've grasped it in the slightest bit of the majesty of the holiness of God in verses 1 through 5, and then you get to verse 5, exalt the Lord, worship your answer, our response should be how? What on earth? Me worship him? Yeah, right. And it's a wonder then. Notice Moses, Aaron, and Samuel called upon that name. That's incredible. God displayed his power to Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses called upon that name? Moses actually had the audacity to speak. What's more so, what is more incredible than Moses and Aaron and Samuel calling to the Lord is the fact that that holy God answered them. Do you get this? That that should be mind-blowing to us. The holiness and majesty and glory of God displayed and he calls people to call upon, they do and then And then he speaks to us. Why? That is so far below his glory to condescend, to speak to his creations. That would be as if I I built something out of wood. I enjoy that and then I, I, I spoke to it as if it's actually a thing. Certainly we're more than wood, but you get the idea here. It's incredible that God in his holiness would even speak to Moses, Aaron, and Samuel and that he would even speak to us. And what does he want his people to know when he speaks to us? Well, after Mount Sinai, when Mount Sinai is concluding, what does God do? Exodus 34, five through seven, and I've said this many times and I'll continue to say it. This is what God wants us to know about him this is how he describes his name as yahweh exodus 34 5 through 7 the lord descended in the cloud stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the lord he proclaimed his own name my name is yahweh O Lord, verse 8, you answered them, you were forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. It doesn't mean he saved them from their wrongdoings. That means he disciplined them and chastised them for their wrongdoings. You don't discipline and chastise people that are not your own. The fact that our holy God forgives, you were a forgiving God to them, is, is remarkable What does holiness do? In its fullest form, holiness separates. It does not relate. It is set apart. It destroys. So God in his holiness is doing something miraculous to relate to his people, to forgive them when his holiness actually calls upon him to separate from us. I think you know where this is going and it's found in verse 9 exalt our God if we had the Lord is holy our Lord is holy and we looked at our King is holy and we recognize that God answers and forgives his people and we get to verse 9 exalt our God we know where this is going which is Christ we're called to exalt that is we're called to hold someone or something in very high regard we're called to think of him and speak very highly of god and we're called notice it says verse 9 to worship at his holy mountain and for those who were originally reading this they would have been thinking probably the temple mount they would probably have been thinking jerusalem this place where the people of god were to go and worship the NASB renders it as the holy hill. And the question is, how do we now, so many years later from when this was written, worship at his holy mountain? And the answer is obviously Jesus Christ. I just said holiness in its fullest form separates, but it does not relate. We can think of the holy of holies. Holiness is not personal, but what does Jesus Christ do? He comes down and relates. Psalm 15 asks the same, sort of a similar question Who may abide on your holy hill? And the answer is no one. It gives a description, and if we're in our right minds, we read it and go, That's not me. It's describing Jesus Christ. God is incensed with our sin, thus, we cannot worship at his holy mountain unless we have Christ. Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He hates our sin and he's storing it. He's bottling it up. He's building bigger barns for the day he releases it upon all those that are not in him. R.C. Sproul put it this way in his book, The Holiness of God. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been brought for us by grace. Close quote. I ask you this morning: Would you consider your sin, and what are you going to do with it? Would you consider your sin, and what are you going to do with it? In the light of the holiness of God. and the fact that he's incensed against sinners. We need Christ. I found it interesting as I was studying this and thinking about the term Yahweh, when we get in the Old Testament to Joshua, who's a foreshadowing of Christ, it's Yeshua, the Hebrew for Jesus. And Yeshua is a contraction of Yahweh and Yoshia, or Yahweh saves. So then you get Jesus, the one who saves. The name and authority of God as Yahweh is found in Jesus. And thus the importance of the personhood of Christ. This is why we say he was fully God and fully man, because that's the only way Holy God could relate to man, is if one took on fully man. This is why we love John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is why every cult, every other false religion goes south on the personhood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 2 through 3, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. This is why the name of Jesus is so important. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Yahweh saves. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who can worship on the holy mountain? All those in Christ your only hope before the God of greatest might and power is to throw yourself in repentance before him and plead for him to save you from his wrath by the blood of his holy son sent to die on the cross for sinners like you the right response to the holiness of God is to cower and plead I need something to shield me and it's the blood of Christ It is when we begin with God and who he is as holy that we are left by his grace seeing the other hopelessness of sinners being able to be in his presence and not be obliterated. It is when God opens our eyes afresh to see his holiness that we see our sin aright and thus all the glory goes only to Jesus and that's what God wants, glory to his son. I want to close simply with this or this uh, refrain, this idea I told you at the beginning this is the last in the royal psalm psalm 99 the praise of god as king of his people and the wonder of that idea is realized all the more when we see that these people psalm 99 rejected god as king and what did god do he drew people to himself and made people that hated him to be his people in order to praise him the wonder of this is that we only praise God as king when God makes us his people. Because of Jesus Christ, we can, as his holy people, worship him in spirit and truth. We've thought about Mount Sinai, but think of it. Mount Sinai, this where the law, the word of God comes down, and people could not worship. They could not go up. Moses was sent up. What happens in the new Jerusalem? Christ went up. To come down to bring us up to New Jerusalem for eternal worship. That's how we can get to worshiping at his holy mountain. Because of Christ coming down to take us up. Holy defines the places God is present. Thus we are called in 1 Peter 2.9 a holy nation in Christ. And are called to pursue holiness. And how do we do that? This is this idea of holiness everywhere in the Bible. By the power of the Holy Spirit indwelt in us God makes his people holy so we see in verse 8 and 9 of Psalm 99 the shift in the language O oh Lord our God he's my God because he made me his child and, the, and we just keep building it's a wonder then Matthew 6 Christ tells his disciples to talk to God like this our father the disciples' minds were exploding what we're going to talk to him in this intimate fashion the intimacy of the people of god through christ have with god the father he is now our father we are his children our fear should still be there but now no longer as his enemies but as his children william reed newell wrote the song at calvary And I think it describes well the glory of the holiness of God sending his holy son to make a holy bride for his people. It says this, the song says this, you probably know it. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. This is a psalm by a king to a people who had rejected God as their king. We who once rejected God as our king have now been brought into his kingdom and made heirs of his kingdom are to sing such a song to a people all around us who still reject God as their king. Let's do so well this week. Father, we thank you for sending your holy son, Jesus, to unholy people like us. That you love unholy people to the point that you would send your holy son to make us holy is something we cannot comprehend. In fact, we will spend eternity trying to wrap our minds around such a wonderful concept such a truth. Father, we, as we prayed in our prayer of confession, do not consider you as holy as often as we should. Father, what we would ask, I would ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, stamp across our hearts and minds the truth that cannot be removed, that you are holy and you are to be treated as holy. Oh, Father, your holiness is so good. We are so grateful for it, that you are not like us, that you are all-powerful, that your power is has the ability to, to absolutely obliterate everything in its presence, and it also has the power to bring to life dead And non existent things. Father, we who were once in sin were dead, and your word, your holiness, your power called us and created us as your people. Father, I would ask this morning if there's someone here that has not bowed the knee to your holiness and recognized that their sin cannot be removed but by the perfection of the blood of Christ. They would not sleep well. Their mind would be filled with the question of what do I do with my sin? And that you would reveal to them by your grace the glory of the Holy Son of God That condescended and took on flesh to save us from our sin. Oh, Father, may our response to you be only that which is worship. May we exalt you. We look forward to that day when we will be with your people in the New Jerusalem. And even as we sing and we fellowship and we eat and we delight in one another today, May it be just an appetizer, a foretaste, building in us a longing for that day to come, but also a strength to pursue the holiness you call us to. All for your glory and your glory alone. In the precious and holy name of Christ, I pray.
0: Amen.